Thank you for coming to the second round of meetings in the Historic Preservation Ordinance revision process. I'm Amy Scanlon, and I'm with the City of Madison Historic Preservation Plan staff team. Other members of the staff team um, are Bill Fruling, who's back there in the yellow shirt, and then Ryan Jonely, who's back there in the plaid shirt. So the City of Madison is working with a consultant team for the Historic Preservation Project. Jennifer Lurkey of Legacy Architecture will lead the ordinance revision discussions. She's in the back. And then Jason Tisch of Archetype Historic Property Consultants is also here, and he's right there. So we're planning to cover a large amount of material tonight. Um, please pick up a comment sheet on the back. It's the one that looks like it's striped gray and white. Uh, please use the handout to write comments as we're uh, flying through this material. We might not have the ability to um, take up everyone's comment or concern during the meeting, but we do want to get back to you with answers, and um, the comment card is a, is a good way to convey your ideas to us um, if we can't accommodate it during the meeting. So there's a basket on the back table by the water where you can turn those comment cards in, or please hand it to any of the people that are involved in the preservation plan. So your ideas are very important, and we do appreciate that you came tonight. There are also pens and pencils on that check-in table, so if you need a writing utensil, um, just scream and we'll get you one. All right, so this slide is about uh, following us on our project website and on Facebook if you're interested. If you've signed in on the um, sign-in table, we can send you these links in a follow-up email. So please do that if you'd like. So we're currently running a selfie contest and we're looking for your help to identify the places that have shaped the cultural, social, and physical character of the city. These places, no matter how big or small, are important and in rep there. Let me start that again. These places, no matter how big or small, are important in representing the collective history of all Madison residents. So please take a picture of yourself in a place that in Madison that is significant to you, your family, or community, and tell us why you value it. Then you send an email to um, historicpreservation at cityofmadison.com. There are information cards on the back table about the selfie contest, so even if you're not interested, take a couple and put them in your neighbor's front doors. So I'm going to run through the Historic Preservation Project and Ordinance Revision process to date, and then I'll turn the presentation over to Jennifer so that she can discuss the ordinance revision issues. So sorry, I'm all over the place. Um, the Preservation Project is made up of two parts, as you can see here in the slide. The first part is the revision of the historic district sections in the Historic Preservation Ordinance, which is why you're here tonight. The Ordinance Revision, sorry, the Landmarks Ordinance Review Committee, also known as the LORC, will lead the Ordinance Revision process, and the LORC is made up of five alders. Three of those have historic districts in their districts. One mm -hmm. of those is Alder B. Darcyloff. The second part of the project is the actual development of the Historic Preservation Plan. This process is separate from the ordinance revision process and will be led by the Landmarks Commission.
The ordinance revision process will include three meetings in each of the historic districts. The first round of ordinance revision meetings, uh, those were held in the fall of 2017. The findings from those meetings were shared with the Landmarks Commission and the LORC. The process was put on hold to accommodate the actions of the state related to statute revisions. And the second round of meetings are being held now in September and October of 2018. These meetings, the findings from these meetings will be um, shared with the Landmarks Commission and the LORC as well. And then the third round of meetings will be held in November and December. And at those meetings, the consultants will provide their recommendations for revisions. The comments from those meetings will then go to the Landmarks Commission and the LORC as well. And then once the LORC receives the consultant recommendations, they will begin their work. So the, as I mentioned, the LORC is a mayor appointed committee of five alders. The LORC will meet numerous times to work through the recommendations and draft the ordinance language with assistance from the city attorney's office. And this language, the new ordinance language, would then be reviewed by the Landmarks Commission before going to council for adoption. So that was a really quick run through of the process. So during that first round of meetings, um, participants provided recommendations and comments about the ordinance and the general historic preservation program. The majority of the, rec of the comments received were related to the development of the historic preservation plan some of the comments that were repeated numerous times in those meetings included the need for illustrated guidelines, streamlining the approval process, training the commission members, coordinating city policies, providing outreach and educational opportunities, and providing financial incentives and considering urban design elements in historic contexts. So if any of you uh, came to those meetings and made those comments, thank you. Um, we've heard you and they will be then pushed over into the development of the plan. So before I turn the presentation over to Jennifer, are there any questions on process or why we're here tonight? All right, and Jennifer. Thank you, Amy. I'm Jennifer Lurkey from Legacy Architecture. Um, if you guys came to the round one meetings, um, you, hopefully you might remember me. How many of you did come to the round one meetings? Oh, great, like almost all of you, thank you. Um, so a little bit about what we're gonna do tonight is um, almost historic preservation 101. So we're gonna give um, everybody in the room a little bit of education and maybe a background about where some of our recommendations might be coming from based on national and state examples and other local um, preservation ordinances and standards and guidelines that we've been studying from communities across the country. Um, again, I think most of the property owners that attended those round one meetings said that they love living in their district. They appreciate the intent of the standards to keep their neighborhood intact and maintain their neighborhood's character, but that they also cautioned there was room for improvement. Um, so uh, how many of you ever looked at the standards for review for your district? Okay, they are online. Um, and every historic district has their own set of standards. So these are the University Heights ones. One of the things that we 
immediately looked at when we started this project was each of the districts has their own set of standards and they vary greatly. So the districts that were um, landmarked years ago have just a handful of standards. The districts that were landmarked more recently have a ton of standards and these matrices were or matrices were um, on some of the tables during the round one meetings and they kind of show graphically the great discrepancy between the districts. So we're um, suggesting uh, for clarity and uniformity um, that there may be a way to kind of level the playing field, so to speak, between the districts, which would certainly make interpretation issues a little easier on uh, commission members. Now, looking at standards, the when the ordinance was passed in Madison in the 70s, it was top of the line. Um, ordinance. Uh, through the decades, though, there's been this thing called the Secretary of the Interior Standards, and these were developed by the National Park Service. They're an industry standard. They're used coast to coast, and they are incorporated by reference into Madison's Preservation Ordinance. Um, but they, there are 10 standards. They're very vague and basic, but they're kind of a baseline for historic preservation in communities all over the country. So the first standard is a property will be used as it was historically or be given a new use. Second, the historic character will be retained and preserved. Third, uh, each property will be a physical record of its time, place, and use. Fourth, changes that have acquired historic significance uh, will be retained and preserved. Five, distinctive materials and features will be preserved. Six, deteriorated features will be repaired rather than replaced. Seven, treatments will be undertaken using the gentlest means possible. Eight, and this really doesn't particularly pertain to any of the districts, but archaeological resources will be protected. Nine, new construction will not destroy historic materials and features. And 10, new construction will be undertaken in such a manner that the integrity of the historic property would be unimpaired. So those are a national set of standards. Now, we also realize that um, we want to give property owners options. So we've been talking internally about a spectrum of standards for review for your property. And I think the first thing that we need to look at um, it, uh, when contemplating any property is period of significance. So for University Heights, the period of significance for the district is 1893-1928. And there may be individual landmarks also within that district too, which have their own period of significance. So one of the things that we want to think about when we're talking about revising the standards are knowing your period of significance. Are you in the period of significance in the district or are you in a individually landmarked property or are you in a property that's outside the period of significance for the district? And there may be different standards for those things. And we heard that time and time again at the round one meetings for all the districts. Another thing that we want to offer possibly in a spectrum of standards is um, knowing the facade or what face of the building we're talking about. So 
The ordinance currently refers to street facade or visible from the street, which would be a primary front or street facing part of your property versus a not visible from the street, which is a secondary side, rear or, or non street facing side of your property. And there may be different standards for those. Um, the, the street facing or visible from the street having a higher standard than, let's say, the not visible from the street. And then also, I think there's a spectrum of treatments that you can choose for your properties, too. Again, you have options. You can choose to identify, retain, and preserve important features of your property and just leave them be. You can choose to protect and maintain them. You can choose to repair them. And if they become so deteriorated that you can't repair them, you may be doing limited replacement of them. And if features are just completely missing or the level of deterioration is so bad, you may even be considering designing for the replacement, complete replacement of these missing features. And there may be some association with the standards with this. If you're doing, let's say, one through three, you might have a more easier streamlined process. But if you're starting to get into four and five, maybe you, you've got a full-blown Landmarks Commission meeting coming. So there might be some ways to associate some of this with a streamlining process. All right, so alterations. Um, this is why most of you go to Landmarks Commission, why most of you have to deal with the ordinance, is you're considering some sort of alteration to your historic property, correct? Um, so we want to make sure that... Um, that these alterations do not radically change or obscure or destroy character-defining materials and features and finishes of your historic property. So we're going to go through some of those character-defining materials and features and finishes, and I'm going to be showing you, um, we're going to talk a little bit about the history and why those are important, and then I'm going to show you some good examples of how they've been repaired or replaced or altered. I'm going to show you some really bad examples, um, just to kind of um, let you know there's a reason why we have this ordinance and why we try to help you make good decisions, because terrible things can happen. Um, the, most of the photos I'm going to show you come from either national publications, statewide um, sources, or other communities that have uh, illustrated guidelines or standards. Um, so, so these are not things that we're coming up with willy-nilly. These are based on federal and state uh, recommendations. So who has masonry on their building? Good number of you. Great. Masonry is one of the more lasting building materials. It's been used throughout history. Um, stone is most commonly used in historic buildings, and there's quarry stone like sandstone, limestone, marble, granite, and slate. There's also gathered stone like fieldstone, river rock, and boulders. Another type of masonry is brick. Brick varies in size and in permanence. Before 1870, brick clays were pressed into molds and they were often very unevenly fired and therefore the bricks were not a very good quality. But quality of historic brick 
um, really depended on the clay that was available locally and that brick-making technique. But by the 1870s, with the perfection of an extrusion process, bricks became much more uniform and durable. Another masonry material um, that you might encounter or may have on your properties is terracotta. Um, it was also another kiln-fired clay product, and it was popular from the late 19th century until the 1930s. Now, what holds all these things together? Mortar. So mortar is used to bond together these masonry units. Historic mortar was generally very soft, and it had a lot of lime and sand in it. Portland cement, which creates a harder, more rigid mortar, was first manufactured in the United States in the early 1870s, but it wasn't commonly used in the United States um, until the early 20th century. So mortar used in buildings that were constructed from 1873 to the 1930s really varies a lot. So it's very important to know what type of mortar you have um, in your building. Now, while masonry is one of the most durable historic materials, it's also very susceptible to damage by exposure, improper maintenance or repairs, abrasive cleaning, and the application of non-permeable coatings. So here's an example of uh, a brick building that really needs some tuck pointing. You can see the mortar is basically gone. There's not much of it between the bricks. Now, when you're thinking about a tuck pointing project for your historic building, first thing we want to know a little bit about is what kind of um, tooling was used. How was that mortar finished? And on the left, you'll see um, a variety of different tooling types that were very popular and common. Um, on the right, you'll kind of see the proper way to do tuck pointing project. At the top, it says existing, and it shows how it was tooled. You need to remove a good chunk of it, you need to fill it in, and then you need to tool it so that it matches. Um, and, and these are all very important details uh, that we look at when evaluating tuck pointing projects. These, when you see these red equal with the slash sign, that means it's not equal, these are bad examples. So here's some bad examples of a tuck pointing job. The tooling doesn't match up, the mortar doesn't match up, and these things happen all the time. And I guess what, what we try to have these standards here is to, to try to help you so this doesn't happen to you. Um, but here are two examples of a really badly done tuck pointing job. This is an example of a tuck pointing job where they used a hard Portland cement mortar when they should have been using a soft mortar. And over time, it caused the faces of the brick to pop off, which is called spalling. These two photos are showing um, ramifications of, of uh, abrasive cleaning techniques. On both of the photos, on the left-hand side, um, they used uh, either sandblasting or really high-pressure uh, water, and the mortar would, was blown out of the joints. And on the right of both of these pictures, you can see they used a proper cleaning technique, and the mortar stayed in the joints. Um, I will say this picture is from a project, a historic tax credit project I worked on, and the mason was fired. Um, they had, the owner had to, on the left was one mason, on the right another mason came in to finish the project because we fired a mid-project. Um, so this stuff happens all the time from very reputable contractors that say they know what they're doing, um, but sometimes they don't. And so, you know, sometimes these standards are here to help you from having these problems. Um, now, how many of you have wood on your buildings? Great, good. 
Wood is one of the most essential materials used in American building of every period and every style of architecture. Its many and varied attributes make it suitable for multiple uses, including structural members, siding, roofing, and decorative features. Um, you know, the sawmills were some of the first buildings built in every community as they sprung up, and they cut timbers into boards, and um, any ornamental features were all done by hand before the Civil War. After the Civil War, mechanized production increased efficiency and wood's use in building construction greatly expanded. And with more efficient production came lower costs, um, but also the standardization of ready-made moldings and assemblies for windows, doors, and other decorative features. Wood selection and construction practices have always capitalized on its attributes and compensated for its weaknesses. The resistance to decay made white oak and cedar common choices for roofing shingles. But contrary to that, pine and yellow poplar have been used for siding and trim because of their straight grain and ease of milling, but they weren't very decay resistant, so you always needed to paint them to protect them from decay. So the majority of practical and decorative features are often made of wood in uh, buildings. Wood is a very repairable product. Here's an example of a shingle-sided um, house. They just popped out the, the deteriorated shingles and they placed new ones in. It's very, very repairable. Here's another example on a wood clapboard house. They took out um, perhaps pieces that were rotten and cracked. It also looks like they filled in where a window was. Um, but again, it's very repairable. Now, when we need to start talking about replacement because the siding is so far gone, there are lots of options out there. You go to a big box store and there are a ton of options available to you. So on the left here, we see a vinyl siding product. On the right, we see a fiber cement siding product. But you can see that they have this faux wood grain in it. And historic wood siding didn't have that faux wood grain in it. So these are not suitable replacements. They don't look the same. Here, this one's a little bit better. They left the historic window. They left this historic trim around the historic window, but they put in this textured fiber cement siding. And again, it doesn't look right. It's not the same. You can get fiber cement siding in smooth. It's usually a special order, but most of the fiber cement manufacturers make it. So you just have to know enough to ask for it. But if you're just going to buy something off the shelf at Menards or Home Depot or Fleet Farm or Lowe's, or oftentimes this is what they carry, which is not appropriate for historic buildings. Again, wood's easy to replicate, too. So this is an example of some historic porch pieces. Some of the pieces were missing, rotted, deteriorated. They had some new pieces made, and you can see them in the boxes there that they're going to just put them in where they need to. Metals. Who's got metal on their building? Anybody? It's a little rare, but metal are com is commonly used in historic buildings, and all kinds of metals from lead, tin, turnplate, zinc, copper, bronze, brass, iron, steel, aluminum, stainless steel, and the list goes on and on. <laughs> historic metal building components were often designed by highly skilled artisans. By the late 19th century, many of those components were pre prefabricated, and they were available in catalogs. You could just order them. Um, 
Wrought iron was one of the first metals to be commonly used. It was used for nails and tie rods and hardware. And then it gradually increased in size to larger pieces for balconies, railings, porches, steps, and fencing. It wasn't really used for structural components until around the mid-19th century when manufacturing equipment became more sophisticated. Cast iron was next. It was used to make columns, um, which uh, started in the 1820s, but then they started making entire building fronts out of cast iron, and other decorative, structural, and ornamental features um, followed soon after. Then came steel, which played an important role in developing high-rise buildings. Um, zinc coating on steel and sheet metal created galvanized iron, which was used for roofing and decorative roofing features, such as steeples and roof crusting and other ornamental architectural features like door and window hood moldings and lintels and oriel and bay windows. Um, bronze was, uh, appears at entrance doors and historic storefronts. And then came um, stainless steel, which is relatively new compared to some of these other metals. And it began being used in the 1920s, and it was a favorite material for Art Deco buildings during the 30s and 40s. And then came aluminum siding, um, which was advertised as maintenance-free and became very popular in single-family residences. It was introduced in the late 30s, but wasn't really popular until the 50s. Um, and aluminum is still used today in gutters and downspouts and flashings, as well as windows and storefront materials as well. Now, metal can be a very repairable material, too, if you catch it from rusting through early enough. And you can simply, you know, take a wire brush to it, get that rust off, and it's just really important to keep it painted. I mean, common maintenance solves a lot of problems. Here's some columns where it's rusting at the base. Again, uh, scrape or sand off that rust, get it repainted, keeps it looking good for a long, long time. All right, who has a roof on their building? Okay, just wanted to make sure you guys are all awake yet. Um, <laughs> the roof with its forms and features like dormers, cupolas, chimneys, um, they're really important design elements of many historic buildings. In addition, a weather-tight roof is essential to the long-term preservation of any structure, historic or not. Throughout all periods of history, wood has been used for roofing. Wood shingles remain the most common roofing material throughout much of the 19th century. After that, clay tile and slate were introduced. Both provide fire protection in urban areas. The use of slate expanded quickly in the second half of the 19th century with the development of the railroads that could bring slate all over. And it remained a preferred roofing material um, until the middle of the 20th century. Lead and copper came next, and they were the first metals used for roofing, and they were later joined by zinc and iron. And galvanized steel, um, when that came around, that could be stamped into sheets that simulated shingles and clay tiles as well. Concrete roofing tiles began to be produced as a substitute for the clay roofing tiles. And about the same time that that was done, um, composition roofing, like built-up roofing or roll roofing, was also developed for flat roof solutions. In the 20th century, asbestos fiber cement and asphalt shingles came into play, um, which is probably pretty common for what you guys uh, have on your homes, um, as, as a less expensive alternate to slate. 
and to wood too. And then later in the 20th century, sheets of synthetic rubber and all kinds of stuff came out for flat roofs too. So wide variety. Here we go with wood shingles. Um, on the left is an actual wood shingle roof. And in the middle and right are two examples of the suitable replacement. So the middle one is just a simple three-tab shingle. Um, the one on the right is a simple architectural style shingle. And you'll notice on this one that the bottom of the shingles align and there's not very heavy faux shadowing on it. Okay, those are very important things. This next picture you'll see these are two architectural shingles that are not acceptable. You'll see the bottoms of the shingles are all over the place. There's very heavy fake shadow lines on them and they just don't look like the shingle. You can see these look a lot closer to the original shingle, right? Okay. Then for slate, on the left is a picture of an actual slate roof. In the middle, that's a synthetic. Looks really good. Um, but on the right, that's also a synthetic, but it's just not laid upright. Like if they would have laid it upright, it probably would be good. But um, the sizes, shape, and configuration of it is just off. All right, you've all got windows, right? Okay, good. So technology and prevailing architectural styles really shaped the history of windows. Um, by the beginning of the 18th century, glass had increased in size, and um, wood muttons and putty held the glass in place in wood windows. Um, most common wood window was a double-hung window where the bottom sash would move vertically. If just the bottom sash moved, it's called a single hung window. If the top sash moved too, it's a double hung window. Um, as the production of glass improved, larger pieces of glass became more affordable and it resulted in fewer panes of glass in windows. After about 1850, with the advent of mass-produced millwork, standard profiles and sizes of windows were established with a wide variety of designs and glazing configurations that could be purchased from catalogs. Now, after wood came steel. Steel was employed beginning at the end of the 19th century um, to build fire-resistant windows in tight urban environments. Steel windows came in many forms, ranging from casements to large multi-pane units, which provided whole walls of natural light in industrial and warehouse buildings. Their relatively small panes and the fact that they were puttied from the inside made the inevitable breakage easy and inexpensive to repair. Commercial aluminum windows were developed around the 1930s, and by the 1970s, they rivaled wood in popularity for commercial buildings. After that came metal-clad wood windows, which appeared in the early 20th, 20th century, but they um, weren't common until the later part of the century. And although they were used primarily as replacements in older buildings, vinyl and fiberglass windows are now on the market. Um, they were developed in the later part of the 20th century and it marketed as inexpensive and thermally efficient. Storm windows, of course, are always an option. They were used historically and they're still used to help regulate interior temperatures. Limited commercial use of thermal pane or insulated glass in windows began in the 1930s, but it wasn't really readily available until 1950. And since then, work has continued to improve the efficiency and to reduce the effect of ultraviolet rays with tinted and low E glass. 
So here's some examples. Hopefully your windows don't look like this. But this is still repairable. Many people think they've got to replace this, but this is still a repairable window. Um, we came across this. I can't remember what community it was from, but it was from another community's design guidelines, and it was really nice um, graphic on repair versus replace. Because uh, we know Windows is probably everybody's number one issue um, in historic preservation. And, um, you know, the broken glass can easily be repaired. Putty that holds the glass in place can easily be repaired. Um, you know, alligatoring or crackling paint can easily be fixed. But on this lower half, it shows the wood is really starting to dry rot. Once those sashes start to rot out, then we've got to start talking about replacement. Now, when you start talking about replacement, let's really pay attention to the details because that's, that's what we do when we talk about replacement. And on the left, you'll see an original mutton, what they look like, what their profile is, and the picture that's associated with it. You can kind of see the character that it gives. On the right is an example of windows that people commonly come to preservation commissions all, all over the country and say, well, this looks the same, but it doesn't. I mean, you can see, you don't see the mutton at all. You just see the glare from the glass. That mutton's buried between the glass. Um, and the look is just not the same, and it's not an acceptable alternate. Again, the picture on the left shows a historic wood mutton. On the right, it shows like an applied mutton um, that just doesn't look the same. And here's some more uh, examples of an original window on the left and some improper replacements where they don't fill the opening completely. Um, the one kind of in the middle, the top was flattened out. Um, the one next to it, they flattened out the top and they filled in the bottom because they just wanted to use a stock window off the shelf at your big box store. Um, actually, a lot of window manufacturers, if you tell them the sizes, they will easily custom make and it's not that much of an upcharge. Um, if anything, sometimes it's less. Um, and again, here there's a couple examples of appropriate replacements where they followed that arch um, and then these where they flattened out the arch and even the one at the top, they like infilled in the sides too. Again, you can see when you see these side by side, they don't look the same. Other details that we're looking at at the top here, um, you can see a sill profile of a historic window, what that looks like. In the middle, that's kind of what a fiberglass or a vinyl window looks like. And a lot of people think fiberglass and vinyl looks the same too, but it doesn't. They don't even have sills. Uh, so that example kind of shows you there's really not a sill. The whole window, because it's so thin, actually gets moved forward into the opening. So where the glass is isn't even in the same plane as where it was historically. And then the bottom here is an example of a good uh, replacement, and an acceptable replacement profile. It has a sill. The glass is kind of set back in the opening deeper like the original window was. All right, entrances and porches are often the focus of historic buildings. With their functional and decorative features, such as doors and steps, balustrades and columns, they can be extremely important in defining the historic character of a building. Usually, entrances and porches were integral components of a building's architectural design. For example, porches characterized by 
turned porch posts and turned railings and turned balusters were especially prominent and decorative features of Queen Anne style houses, right? But deep porches on bungalows and craftsman style houses of the early 20th century featured taper posts and exposed posts and beams and rafter tails and low pitched roofs with wide overhangs. So porches can be a very defining feature of what style your house is, right? Late 19th and early 20th century commercial buildings um, also were distinguished by their entries. Um, some entries to commercial structures had, were very recessed, and they had terrazzo and special tile flooring at that entrance. Um, and some more modern buildings had stainless steel and geometric things and, and metal canopies above. So entry is really a key defining feature. So let's look at some examples for, for doors. On the left, obviously, a historic door. On the right, somebody comes to maybe Landmarks Commission and says, I want to replace my historic door with this. No. I mean, this is a fiberglass door. It has a full, I don't know if the slide shows it, a little bit. It has a faux wood grain texture in it, and a historic wood door would be smooth. Um, obviously, the lights, the shape, the style of the door is just not an appropriate uh, replacement. And here's some examples. The two on the left would be appropriate for a lot of historic buildings. I'm not saying it fits for every style of every building, but it fits for a lot. The um, four that are on the right, not really appropriate. But unfortunately, these are kind of the things that you can pick up at the big box store. Good question. So if, if, the, if the older materials were wood, say on the door, but had a very smooth profile, mm -hmm. could you replace it with something newer that wasn't wood? Sometimes, yes. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. I know it's possible wood doors yeah, and, and it's those little details. It's it, oftentimes it's find the smooth one, whether it's siding or doors or whatever, um, because so many of them have that texture in it. And I wish the manufacturers would just stop making this stuff because it would make it so much easier for everybody. Um, and we will at the end. Um, and I should say that first one that says no. Um, if you were living in a mid-century modern house from the 50s, that would be a perfectly great door. But the period of significance in this district goes to like 28, I think I said earlier. So I, 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 there's an if, and, or but for everything in here, and that's the big if, and, or but. If you were talking about putting that in what, like Nicoma or is Nicoma mid-century modern or whatever, and these aren't landmark districts, but you guys know the neighborhoods, that would be perfectly acceptable there. Okay. All right. Now, screen doors. The picture on the left actually has a screen door on it. It's really hard to see. Kind of blends in. Um, the one on on this side here on the right, that screen door is not a very good screen door. It sticks out like a sore thumb, and you don't even really see the door behind it. Porches. I mean, obviously, that one on the left. Repair it. It's beautiful. It's great. <laughs> um, and it, it doesn't meet code. There's nothing about that that meets code. But if you repair it, you're kind of grandfathered in, right? Second you start piddling with it, now it's got to meet code for heights and baluster spacings. This is kind of what you can pick up at your big box store. It's plastic, but the details aren't quite right. Um, and it, you can't really see it on this photo very well. And this is my pet peeve about these. 
but where the top rail hits the post, there's like this big extra plastic piece there. And that's the thing that just kills it for me personally. <laughs> Even when I'm doing new construction on new buildings, it's like, uh, can't the manufacturer make this look better? There's tons of alternate flooring options out there for porches. Again, historic porch floors were smooth. <laughs> and you'll see an example on the left there that was a smooth painted porch floor. But a lot of times when you're looking at alternative or more maintenance free, this is what you see and it's got that crazy texture in it again. So it's not a good example. I think there are a few manufacturers that are making a smooth and it's the size of like a dug fur porch floor. Um, so it, some of these things are being made, you just have to hunt them down. And again, wood ceilings on porches are easily repairable. If you have a few rotten pieces, they can be replaced um, with new beadboard. And this kind of goes to the code thing that I was talking about a little bit before. Um, you can sort of see the shorter railing that was there, but it didn't quite meet the height requirements for code, so they just added a simple rail to the top to get to that height requirement for code. This is kind of a bad example of a screened-in porch, but it had the potential of being a good example. So in this picture, all that black, dark stuff is the screen porch and it's on the it kind of obscures all the white original porch stuff that's behind it this could have probably been acceptable if the black stuff was just put inward of the white stuff because then the original historic porch components would have shown and would have been highly visible but you still would have had it screened in it just would have been behind that and the porch components would have actually concealed all that stuff so it would have been very inconspicuous All right, does anybody have a commercial property in the district? I know there's very few. All right, nobody. We're just going to go through this very, very quickly. Um, you know, storefronts are very character-defining for commercial-type buildings. Um, storefronts are the most frequently changed things on buildings, too, because stores wanted to be modern and hip and the latest and greatest, and so the storefronts were continually changing. Here's a really good example of kind of like an Art Deco 30s or 40s storefront. This is a historic wood storefront. I think it's almost impossible to find one like this. I mean, this has been replaced two times over already. But this one's, you know, this is repairable yet. Um, some examples of some good replacement storefronts and maybe some poorly designed replacement storefronts. And this is a building um, not around here but the whole entire storefront had been rebuilt. Very nicely done, fits in great with the building. You wouldn't know that it was a new storefront. All right, anybody contemplating any new additions or new construction, garages, anything like that? All right, I'm gonna go quickly through this. There's um, no formula or prescription for designing a compatible new addition or related new construction on a site, nor is there generally only one possible design approach that would meet standards. Um, new construction uh, could really be any style. I mean, sometimes the easiest thing to do is a simplified version of your historic building. Now, I think one of the big changes that might come out of these ordinance revisions, there are several um, districts in their ordinance that it says when you do an addition or new construction, it must match exactly. 
and that is not um, industry standard. That is, that is actually, we don't want to do that nowadays. Um, so we want that subtle contrast and that subtle differentiation so that you understand that that is a new addition. Um, generally, we want additions on, on the rear or a secondary elevation to ensure that it's subordinate to the historic building. We want to make sure it's appropriately scaled um, and located far enough away from the historic building so that the building maintains its character and its site and its setting. Um, so some of these things, we're going to talk about location and scale and proportion and that type of thing. So in this example, the street is on the bottom. The addition is obviously in the rear, um, and it's smaller than the footprint of the house. So it's good on location. It's good on scale. Um, here are some kind of residential examples, maybe like a garage addition uh, on the far left. It's a corner lot, so they could put the garage in the rear and have the driveway come out the other side. Um, next one in, garage addition on the rear with a uh, driveway out to an alley in the back. Um, middle one, uh, driveway addition again to the rear of the house with a driveway to the front. But then these two on the right side, not so hot. That garage is too far forward, um, kind of really gets in the way and overtakes the character of the house. And we talk about, in the design community, we talk about hyphenated connectors or these connectors, and it's really almost like this breezeway, this small little connection to your historic building, and then having that addition back further. It keeps them separated, really keeps the identity of the historic building. Here in this example, that's not good. That addition is huge, it's massive, it's overpowering, it takes up the whole back end of the house. Some other examples, if there's an infill, perhaps. Um, some districts that we've been talking to, there are these opportunities for infill um, where there's been maybe demolition or whatnot. This, these are some bad examples for infill. So you can kind of see there's a rhythm, there's a pattern set up on the street. There's this uniform setback set in these neighborhoods. And the one on the left, they set it back too far. In addition to that, it's huge. It's so much bigger than the rest of the um, buildings that are on that block. Um, and again, here on the right, um, very vertical houses up and down the street, and then this squat horizontal house comes in. It kind of doesn't fit the pattern. This One of these things is not like the other. You know, that's what's going on here. Not to say that you have to copy what's there. We don't want you to do that. But here's an example of a bad addition to a house. You can see um, the location of this addition is really close to the front of the house. Its scale is... I mean, it's small, so its scale is probably good, um, but the proportions are off, the rhythm is off, the directional expression, because it's very horizontal and the house is very vertical, is off. Um, the materials are the same, so that's not so bad, but the roof shape is off. There's just, this is a bad addition, right? This is commonly used all over the country as an example of a good addition. The National Park Service uses this all the time. Photo on the left, you can see um, the front of the house, kind of a boxy uh, mass sort of a, of a house. And that addition, you can see just in the back a little bit. Um, picture on the left is the addition from a different angle. Um, the location is good because it's on the rear. The scale is good because it's smaller um, than the existing house. The proportions are good. I mean, the main house was kind of boxy. This is sort of boxy. Um, 
The materials are, are also good. I don't know about the roof. Um, it's hard to tell in this picture what the roof looks like, but generally this is used across the country as an example of a good addition to a house. Um, this is more in regards to commercial, so I'm going to go through that quickly. Um, again, these are examples of good additions to commercial buildings. All right, so that is the end of Preservation 101. It's kind of going to form the basis of some of our recommendations that we're going to make um, for updating the standards.